Keeping It With Jones, the Lonnie Jones podcast adventure, is brought to you by TKM Incorporated. This company located in Moss, Tennessee, specializes in erosion control, hydro-seeding, hydro-mulch, silt fence. They do minor excavation work, and they also provide traffic control and construction signs. Their mission is keeping people safe. Their passion is wishing that all men could be saved. TKM stands for The King's Men. If you'd like to contact The King's Men, you can contact them at 931-243-3958. 931-243-3958. Or you may email them at tkminc2001 at twlakes.net. That is tkminc2001 at twlakes.net. The King's Men in partnership with Keeping Up With Jones, the Lonnie Jones podcast adventure. The mission of Heritage Christian University is simple. They aim to advance the churches of Christ by equipping servants through undergraduate and graduate programs. Heritage Christian University produces effective communicators of the gospel, focusing on evangelism and a commitment to scripture. Heritage Christian University is accredited by the Association for Biblical Higher Education and offers the following degrees. Associate of Arts in Biblical Studies, Bachelor of Arts in Biblical Studies, Master of Arts, Master of Ministry, and Master of Divinity. Since 1968, Heritage Christian University, formerly International Bible College, has offered affordable degrees in Biblical Studies, allowing graduates to thrive in their ministries without the burden of loan debt after graduation. For more information about Heritage Christian University, visit www.hcu.edu, that's three W's and a dot, hcu.edu. Heritage Christian University is a sponsor of Keeping Up With Jones, the Lonnie Jones podcast adventure. The kicked kickball had indeed been kicked, but it had not been kicked very well. It went almost straight skyward. And as the guy guarding second base, it became my job, nay, my mission to catch the kicked kickball. So I ran forward looking skyward. The young gentleman who was rolling the kickball so that people could kick it, a young man in my youth group, one of the March twins, they call themselves the Magic March on the basketball court, was backpedaling and looking at the kicked kickball while it was scoured. Based on my training for catching kicked footballs, I was going to watch the ball come into my cradled arms and hug it securely to my chest, thus resulting in an out for the deadly opponents that we were facing in this beautiful Sunday afternoon in Salem, Arkansas. As I ran forward and bowed my head to follow this kickball into my arms, I found the head of the young March gentleman. I remember hearing a loud crack in my brain and seeing those beautiful green and silver stars. I remember opening my eyes in a kneeling position and seeing blood everywhere on the ground. And I shouted, he's bleeding, he's got to go to the hospital. Someone grabbed me by the arm and started dragging me from the field. And I said, you don't understand. He's bleeding. He's got to go to the hospital. They said, you don't understand. You're bleeding and you're going to the hospital. So we loaded up the children from the Salem Church of Christ youth group onto the church van 
and drove to the hospital where Dr. Bozeman sewed me up. Now, as we walked off the, the kickball field in the, the wind of the early spring day, there was enough blood scattered around that kids had blood on them. And when we got to the emergency room, somebody said, how many people were in this car wreck? <laughs> it wasn't a car wreck. It was just a kickball accident. I ended up with about seven or eight stitches above my left eye. And that was my last Sunday at Salem, Arkansas. I had accepted the youth minister position at Memorial Parkway Church of Christ in Huntsville, Alabama. And the first Sunday in March of 1986, my wife and I arrived at church there, and I was to teach my first youth group class. Now, I had been to this church on one other occasion and had observed their youth program and observed their kids in class. The large upstairs classroom that they used for the teenagers had been two rooms, but they knocked out the dividing wall and created this one large room with two entrances, and there were way more chairs than there were students. So it was my first Sunday as the new leader of this youth group. I had gone in before services, stacked some chairs against the wall, and had made a semicircle of just the right amount of chairs so that we could have an intimate, close setting, and I could teach the Bible to these children. About 10 minutes after I began my Bible lesson, this young man walked into my classroom late. I pointed to some of the chairs up front and said, we're glad you're here. You're welcome to sit up front with us. And he walked to the back wall with a John Wayne swagger. He opened one of the folding chairs, sat down in it, and slumped like a beanie baby. I left the podium, walked to the back of the room, reached to the back of the chair, grabbed it, reached to the seat of the chair, and this slumped young man was in such a position that my reaching between his outstretched legs might have made him uncomfortable, but if it did, he didn't say anything, and I picked him up. I walked out of the rear entrance to the room. I marched down the hall, came in the front entrance of the room, and set him firmly on the ground next to my podium, and as I set the chair to the ground, I bent over at the waist, and I whispered in his ear, Jesus loves you but I've just met you. And he got this about three inches away from this young man with a black scar and seven stitches over his left eye. And and thus was the beginning of my youth ministry at Memorial Parkway Church of Christ. Fast forward months and years, and I've got a thriving youth program, and I was a young youth minister, and, and part of the backbone of every youth program was interesting activities. And so we were always trying to find things that would entertain and allow the kids to spend time together. I learned very early on in youth ministry that the greatest gift you can give a child is time. And so we would spend time doing things, goofing off, having adventures, creating games. And I had learned a version of a capture the flag game. Now, I learned the version from a young man named Scooter Reeves. Scooter and I went to high school together. I was a little above him in school. And then after I graduated and and moved away and he graduated and moved away, he'd made a career in the military. And in some of his military training, they were teaching either squad movement or tactics, and they were using this capture the flag game. Now, the way you, you, you play capture the flag, the way they were doing it is you take a napkin and you unfold it and you cut it into four squares. And you take about a tablespoon of of flour and you put it in the center of the napkin and you fold it up and you twist it and you tape it and you make this little bomb. And if somebody throws it at you and hits you, the, the paper will tear and it will leave a mark on you. This was way before anybody ever thought about using paintballs and nobody had ever even seen a munitions gun. And so they used it in the military to teach these squad movements. And, and I had 
adopted the game to, to play with the kids. And so we would play capture the flag and we would spend hours making these little flower bombs and then throwing them at each other. And we, we played in our yard. We played at state parks on this particular occasion. We were playing at Brom Spring Park. Now, if you're not from the Huntsville area, Brom Springs Park it has a couple of lakes. It used to have a little amusement area. It's got an enclosed uh, basketball recreation area and a large section of wooded pine trees. These pine trees is a vast section of pine trees, and there's a, a Frisbee golf course inside there, a disc golf course, and we were using that to play Capture the Flag. Now, one of the young men in my youth group, a young man named Brian, often played with us and every time he would throw one of these little flower balls at you he would yell bip and so we began to call the game bip and thus the little things that we threw were bip bombs and i remember playing in this uh deep dark pine forest over that brom springs park and i had captured the flag and i was running back to my team's base so that i could uh, deliver the flag and thus have a victory what we did we played in rounds and uh in one round your team hid the flag and the other team had to come get it and get it back to base and in the second round your team did the opposite and every time you captured the flag or eliminated the enemy trying to capture the flag you got a point the first team to earn five points won the tournament of the day. And so I'm running through the, the pine trees and I'm dodging and stepping. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this young man, Brian, steps out and bip, he throws this flower bag at my face and he hit me in the left eye. And something amazing happened. When the flower bag approached my left eye, my brain shut down. I hit the ground in a fetal position and actually uttered a cry of despair. Everybody came to me, are you okay? Are you? And it was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually okay. But what had happened was a response to trauma, a physiological response to being hit in the left eye. Now, I got hit with a harmless bit bomb. This is a paper napkin wrapped around a, a spoonful of flour, and you couldn't get a lot of momentum on these things, and you could probably throw one as hard as you could, and it wouldn't hurt anybody. But a part of my brain, the, the if you'll pardon the phrase, the lizard part of my brain, remembered on a fundamental level that something had approached my eye, and I don't consciously remember seeing the young March gentleman's head in my vision. I don't consciously remember Mr. Spock standing in my brain saying, impact in 30 seconds. But my brain remembered it, the, the, the visceral part of my brain. And as soon as that reminder showed up, my body acted as if I had been injured. It acted as if I had been wounded all over again. And that's the way your brain works on trauma. See, this, this trauma reaction is, is very sophisticated. And at the same time, it's primitive. Now, now, how can it be sophisticated and primitive? Well, you just think about shooting a firearm. When you boil it down to its simplest construct, shooting a bullet at somebody is, is basically we're still throwing rocks at each other. It's a very primitive process. I'm throwing a rock at you, and when it hits you, it's going to do blunt force trauma or it's going to do intrusive trauma one way or the other. 
but I'm throwing this rock at you faster than the speed of sound, and I'm using trigonometry to put it on mark, and especially if I'm using any kind of an optic or a telescopic sight, it's extremely primitive, but it's extremely sophisticated. That's the same way your brain works. You've got this primitive section of your brain, and when it is allowed to function, it's pretty sophisticated because it happens at the unconscious rapid cognition level. One author has even called it the amygdala hijack. You have these two little structures in the back of your brain that are almond-shaped called the amygdala. And when your consciousness is signaled with a threat, the amygdala takes over and does its response. Now, if you want a simple thing, if you believe in the triune brain, you've got the, the human part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, and you've got the neocortex, which is the uh, mammalian part of your brain, and at the base of your brain, you've got this lizard or this reptilian brain. So picture you've got three seats on an airplane, and piloting the airplane is a human, and sitting behind the human is a raccoon, and sitting behind the raccoon is a lizard. And you hit an air pocket, and just for a moment, the air pocket bumps the human out of the seat. Before the human can get back in the seat, the lizard runs forward and grabs the control stick, and the lizard is now piloting your plane. You don't want lizards flying your plane. They, they only think in binary terms. And so now you've been hijacked by your amygdala. Now, when it works, it works great. It, it protects you from lots of things. You and I could be sitting in a room and an explosion go off and you'd have a uh, response. You'd have a flex response and, and your hand would come up before you registered, hey, something blew up. You'd hear the noise and that part of your brain would bring your hands up to protect you faster than you could think about doing it. And, and that's the way it's designed to work. But when it gets sophisticatedly confused what the brain will do is it will take anything that is similar and treat it as the same. The, the brain registers all the things on a non-conscious level, and, and that's not a subconscious level, but a non-conscious level. It, it looks at the environment in the same shapes, the same sounds, the same sights, the same feelings, the same temperature, the same music in the background. All of those things have been recorded by the brain when you got hurt, and the brain says, Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. No, no, the brain says, ain't nobody got time to be fooled ever again. And so what it does is it monitors the environment for these triggers, these reminders of trauma, and it protects us from them. And that's why we become avoidant. That's why we become respondent to these reminders. Sometimes we even replay them in our heads, and sometimes we have reactions to them that are appropriate and Sometimes we have reactions to them that are inappropriate. The brain takes that which is similar and absolutely treats it as the same. And I believe that that is probably the basis for how addiction works. And, and, and there's been a lot written and a lot studied and a lot of people talk about the dopamine receptors in the brain chemistry. And, and that is very, very strong. You know, when your brain gets a shot of dopamine, your brain wants more dopamine. And the thing in your brain that controls dopamine says, hey, remember this? We liked it. And so you get to this thing where, where dopamine is this thing that, that basically your brain kind of craves. But the dopamine reaction cycle, the idea of, hey, this produces dopamine, it is controlled or initiated by the similar same phenomenon. When something happens to me, my brain says, hey, this is similar to that, so I'm going to treat it as the same. 
If you get stung by a hornet, you'll dodge a housefly. If you got bit by a Doberman, you'll be nervous around a Jack Russell. If you're scared of snakes, you'll take the garden hoe to the water hose if you're not careful. But the thing is, the, the power of these responses and these reactions is not necessarily the chemical bond, but the thought, feeling, action bond that gets associated with the dopamine. So, so what happens is that, that something's going on, and, and I decided that because of the stress or the trauma or the fear or feeling trapped, that I would do something, whether it was shop whether it was look at the internet or whether it was to smoke something, drink something, or pop a pill. Well, whether those two things are actually related or not, my brain says, hey, when you have this feeling, you did this action and it helped you survive a bad situation. Well, now the brain has, has logged that into this is survival. And that's why the brain chemistry is not the, the only thing that you have to consider because the brain chemistry always talks about the pleasure, always talks about the, the pleasure receptors. This goes beyond pleasure and becomes survival. This is what I'm going to do when that thing approaches me. I'm going to close my eye and fold up and dodge the thing. And it will even recreate the feelings of it. And so when someone starts talking about dealing with a substance use issue, when somebody starts talking about dealing with a compulsive behavior, oftentimes we only look at, at the behavior. But what I'm learning is that what we need to do is ask ourselves, what was the feeling you had when you made the decision to do the behavior? Now, we'll simplify that and just simply talk about use. What is the feeling you had when you decided to use? And, and we've discovered that the decision to use is almost as powerful as using itself. So I'm in a situation where I've got this response to stress or I've got this response to trauma. I've got this response to feeling powerless, trapped or helpless. And while the boss is giving me a lecture about I'm going to stay over and miss my weekend plans because I've got to turn this in. If that's the way I responded to stress was by going out and drinking a beer or by going home and smoking a joint, I would tell myself, you know, you can make me do this, but when I go home today, I'm going to do X, Y, or Z. And once I have the power to make that decision, I'm able to stay at work and finish my job and do my thing with this oppressive boss because that's the same way I reacted to my oppressive coach or my oppressive teacher or my oppressive stepdad. And the brain has connected this thought with this feeling and the feeling that I had then my brain says well it's a similar feeling let's treat it the same way we did and then our actions get bonded and so oftentimes you, you've got to ask yourself you know hey when when you decide to to do your compulsive habit and if it's a compulsive habit that you want to break or something that is causing distress or dysfunction or destruction, instead of just looking at yourself and saying, I can't do this anymore, you've got to understand the, the phenomenon that produced it. What was I feeling when I decided to do this? And what does that feeling remind me of? What's the earliest time I can remember having that feeling? When is the first time I remember it? And all of a sudden, that feeling is the first step in, in that repetition, reptilian cycle. Our brains pursue pleasure, and when something makes us feel good, we want more of it. And our brains avoid pain, 
if we feel trapped, powerless, helpless, worthless, empty, not tall enough, not smart enough, not pretty enough, not enough, we may associate those behaviors that have changed our thinking about ourselves. And oftentimes when we do something compulsive, whether it's use a substance or or look at the internet or shop or gamble or cook or work out, what we're doing is we're replacing a normal activity with a mood elevator. Now, this is where the water may get a little bit muddy. Uh, I don't think it's appropriate for young teenage boys to, to look at pornography. In fact, I think it's a poison for their brain, and it has bad negative effects in their future abilities to be intimate with real people. But just for the sake of explanation, a 16-year-old boy who wants to look at naked females on the Internet is probably pretty normal. In fact, the average adolescent male between the ages of 13 and 23 probably has a thought about sex every seven seconds. And that's the average male. That's not the creepy seventh grade kid in your youth group who wants to hug everybody and buys the free hug shirt at Gatlinburg. It's a normal thing. And so you've got this teenage boy and he has access to this phone. And every time he he flips through a different picture, he gets a shot of dopamine. Well, that's the way the sexual response and arousal is supposed to work. It, it's supposed to make you feel good. And, and for, you know, basic, simple ideas, it's probably normal and, and maybe even somewhat healthy that he's interested in girls. But if he ever takes that habit, if he ever takes that hobby, if he ever takes that idea that I'm going to get on the Internet and, and I'm going to look at these images because I'm bored, stressed, hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, then now pornography has not been about sex. It's a mood elevator. It's a mood changer. The same thing is, is, is eating. I'm, I'm food dependent. I have to have food to live. But if I eat when I'm hungry only, then that's pretty healthy. But, you know, I eat when I'm bored. I eat when I'm stressed. I eat when I'm traveling because that's what you do when you get in a car is you buy monster energy drinks and you eat snacks. And anything that you do that is connected with dopamine that is a response to bored, stress, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or, or other reminders or other triggers, we would say, then you're in the early stages of addiction. And that addiction has a trauma link to it because this is what I felt when I did this and doing this got associated with that feeling and the lizard part of your brain says, hey, this is similar, this is same. Let's react in this protective, let's react in this survival mode. And that's why addictive behavior is so hard to curtail and so hard to change because it gets associated with survival. So when you start thinking about the boredom, stress, hungry, angry, lonely, tired response, Why am I doing this? Well, I'm doing this because I've had this feeling, and this feeling is what leads to these thoughts, and these thoughts lead to these behaviors, and it happens on such a a fundamental, primitive level, but it has a great level of sophistication to it when it gets off the rails, and it gets basically like a uh, Pavlovian response, that it gets bonded to one another. And that's why the addiction cycle created because of trauma is so very hard to break. And most people don't have the insight to, to see that, oh, this plus this really doesn't equal this. But my brain has associated those things simply because of that primitive part of my brain that is sophisticated, says this is how we protect ourselves from these feelings. And so when you get a 
reminder. I don't like to call it a trigger because triggers seem like that you have absolutely zero control over it. And I think, think it needs to be a reminder. So when you have this feeling and that feeling creates the thought that leads to the decision, hey, I, I'm going to use, I'm going to do my activity, I'm going to do whatever it is that seems to be a, a compulsive habit. There's a couple of tricks. First of all, you've got to discern between similar same. This is similar, but it is not the same. That was then. This is now. It happened to me, and I felt, I remember, I have remembered the feeling. But now it's important to say, I know it happened, but it is not happening now. And once we can bridge that gap between the thought, feeling, and reaction, we understand how the brain works on trauma, and we understand how trauma undergirds and how trauma kind of supports what we do that we call addictive behavior because it's linked with a survival mechanism. This feels similar, but you have to remind yourself, I know that it is not the same. And knowing the difference between what you feel and what you know may be the key and may be the cure to addiction. SJL General Contractor is a full construction company that primarily focuses on civil construction and asphalt sales in the Huntsville and Fayetteville regions. Services they provide include, but are not limited to, road construction, asphalt material, underground utilities, site work, and demolition. They employ heavy equipment operators, concrete finishers, pipe layers, and CDL dump truck drivers. If you would like for this company to work for you on your project, or if you'd like to work for them as an employee of this family-owned business, you can contact them at 931-433-4660. That is 931-433-4660 or 3wsandadotsjnl.com. That's www.sjnl.com. SJNL General Contractor is a sponsor of Keeping Up With Jones. Lonnie Jones podcast adventure. Using the tool of shortwave radio, World Christian Broadcasting literally covers the world every day with the gospel. They use two large curtain antennas. One is located in Anchor Point, Alaska, and the other in Madagascar. They send out messages that are recorded at their international home in Franklin, Tennessee. They make available 40 hours of broadcast every day. The broadcasts are made in English, Chinese, Russian, Spanish, Portuguese, Korean, English for Africa, and Arabic. They would love for your group to visit them. You can bring your ladies group, your youth group, or your men's group. Just give them a call at 615-371-8707. 615-371-8707 or you can go to 3wsandadotworldchristian.org find the donate here button and make a financial contribution to support this work that literally covers the world every day with the gospel World Christian Broadcasting in cooperation with Keeping Up With Jones the Lonnie Jones Podcast Adventure
Keeping Up With Jones, the Lonnie Jones podcast adventure. I am your host, Lonnie Jones. My wife Jackie and I moved to the city of Huntsville in 1986 for me to be a youth and family minister. I have been a minister since 1980. I have served in this community as a police chaplain assigned to a SWAT team since 1992. And I've been in private practice as a licensed professional counselor since 1998. I'm also an adventure educator and an avid outdoorsman. I dabble in rock climbing and I goof around with Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Our life has been full of many wonderful experiences and some just outright adventures. I used to write about those things in a little church bulletin article. So now instead of asking you to read those things, we're just going to talk about them in our podcast. And as we talk about them, we're going to talk about the facts. The facts lead to concepts and the concepts lead to application. One caveat about the facts is for the most part, we're going to tell you the facts just as they happened. But every now and then, we're going to tell you the way other people have told us they remember it happening with a little bit of embellishment. It's all good, clean fun and for educational purposes. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy Keeping Up with Jones.